I won't go into the whole thing, but uh, life group leaders, I'll put it in your notes. So you'll look really good this week. It was just after the Civil War, 1870. Judy Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle of the Republic, wanted to start a movement for moms to bring peace. Now it's sort of like I've got this fun factory. Otters, we like to have fun. Beavers, we want it decently in order. So we have our fun decently in order. Yeah, she saw the great need for peace among all people and said the mothers can do that. She saw that civil war could not do it. And swords and fighting and injustice and all of those things could not bring the peace that was needed. So she was going to get all the moms of all the different uh, backgrounds and and uh, countries. And, and uh, she's she started a marvelous thing. didn't really take off right then, but uh, now it's celebrated all over the world. And a lot of it's come into consistency on the second Sunday of the month. And there's another hand that, uh, you know, as we say, the hand that rocked the cradle rules the world. So, Mom, hats off to you in this nation. You know, when we're in distress throughout history of our nation, I'm sure others as well, we design national events that will encourage the population to return to the moral norms of Scripture. We've done it historically. I think this week we celebrated the National Day of Prayer. That was to call the nation back to prayer when it was in distress. Much like the nation of Israel who would wander from God's ways and get in trouble and then cry out and repent and come back and God would you know, send lots of distress and problems into their lives until they would return to Him. And so we have, in fact, a National Day of Prayer that does the same thing. We decided we're in trouble. We need to call on God. It's sad that we have to wait till we're in big trouble to call on Him. But National Day of Prayer, lots of religious holidays, and we've even added, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we added the words, think about the year I was born, we added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Because it was, it was like, this is missing. If we're going to have one nation, it's got to be under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. It can't just be because we're great people. Mother's Day is an encouragement. As a nation agrees, it's an encouragement to honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. The fifth commandment. It's an encouragement to keep the commandment of God by honoring your mother. But you and I both know even God ready? I'm not accusing him. I'm just agreeing with what the Bible tells us. Even God couldn't legislate righteousness into being. He gave the commandments. 
as was said, I think, last week, uh, even if we had just stopped with the Big Ten, we'd all failed. Because on this number five, honor your father and mother. How many of you have failed? How many have broken that commandment? Yeah. How many will not raise their hands? And so when the law says if you're guilty on one point, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. And so when we didn't honor our mother and father, we're guilty of the whole law before God. And that is exactly where we need to find ourselves. Coming to terms with the fact that under the law, even now, we cannot keep the directives of righteousness. Without the absolute help of God himself. But with the help of God, we can. Right? We call his assistance by one word. We sang a lot about it this morning. Grace. That is his assistance to us. Grace. By his grace, we can do what he wants us to do. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, right? And that not of yourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift. How many of you have received of His grace this morning? We've received the gift of God. His grace, His capacity, His ability, His depth, His width. It's all available to us by faith. We have to put our faith today to honor mothers, just to honor our mothers. And for mothers to receive honor, we have to find faith in grace. We have to depend on God himself to energize our limited self and overcome our weaknesses and our injuries. I would hope moms are the first to forgive. They seem to have a greater capacity to do it. But you can also hang on to stuff longer. It's kind of a win-lose thing. But to fulfill this commandment, to honor our mothers... It's going to have to be by the grace of God. And to receive honor, it's going to have to be by the grace of God. <laughs> I'll see the picture of a little boy bringing that treasure that he got for Mother's Day, you know, the worm or the snake or something that he thought was a great gift and brought it to mom and said, look, this is for you. And she's got to touch that thing, you know. And like, no, oh, honey, I always did want a frog, you know, slimy little thing and... Because she's going to delight his heart and encourage it. You know, it takes grace to be a mom. <laughs> hey, I've been reading a, a little book lately over and over again. I've even been listening to it on audio. It's only got four chapters. It's a little tiny book. It takes about 20 minutes to read it. Can I share a little bit of it with you this morning? Would that be all right? It's got a great cast in it. It's got a great plot. In fact, it's an incredible, perfect love story. You see me reading love stories? 
And I'm not talking down the paperback section, Louis L'Amour and all that. I'm not there. I don't even read the Christian ones. But this one's called the Book of Ruth. Four chapters long. Reading it out loud takes less than 20 minutes. And it's the perfect love story. Elimelech, Naomi, Malan, Killian, Orpah, Ruth, Boaz. These are the characters in the book. How many of you have read it? At least once. Okay. I hope you read it a couple times this week. The book was written during the period of the Judges. And someone asked me this week, when was Ruth, when was the period of the Judges? And I, I was actually stumped by it because they were mixing dinosaurs with it at the same time. And I didn't know really how to respond. I just couldn't get my head to wrap around Judges and Brontosaurus at the same time. But the book of Ruth was written at a time, and if you want to open to it, you can. I don't know how much of it I'll read, but listen to the last few verses. Actually, the last verse of the book of Judges, just before we turn the page to Ruth. Historically, some have even said that Ruth was included in the book of Judges. But then later on, it was broken out by other scholars and said it stands alone. But I like the place that it's found in our Bible, because it's right between Judges and Samuel. It's the perfect bridge between this verse in Judges 21-25 where it says, and it says this numerous times in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The verse just ahead of it. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time. There was quite an event that had just taken place. And it says, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The picture we see at the end of Judges is that after all the judges have finished their work, there's still no king, there's no common directive, and everybody's looking out for his own stuff and doing what they want. They worship their own way. They hired priests sometimes and, and got people out of here and brought them over there to be their own little priest in their house and have their own little altar set up. And, you know, if you're not going to worship, I'm going to worship my way and they're going to worship that way. And it was just kind of chaotic. And when we, and when we turn the page and we get to this little book of Ruth, it starts out by saying now in the, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. God has promised numerous times in the Old Testament that when his people go astray, he will bring them back in four different ways. Sword, pestilence, uh, famine, and whatever the other one is. You know, I always have that problem. It's like the seven dwarfs. doesn't matter where I start. I always miss one. It doesn't matter if the list has four or ten. I'm going to get nine or three. Nonetheless, they're all in the Bible. Somebody else knows them better than me. But I know that famine is one of the ways that God moves in discipline on his people. And so this story of Ruth opens up and there's a famine. So God has his nation under discipline. Why? Because every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. And they're not following God specifically and unitedly. They're just doing whatever they want. And God begins to bring judgment on them and discipline. But Elimelech, 
this uh, guy says, you know what, I'm getting out of town. I hear over Moab that things are better. They actually have food just across the Jordan on the other side of the, the Dead Sea. Let's go over there. And he grabs his family and goes over there. And there's a statement that says, better to starve in the will of God than to eat the bread of the enemy. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. If you'll recall the history, when the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they went through Edom and Moab, and God said, no Moabite will ever, ever hang out in my temple. You know, because they cursed the Israelites as they came out. They wouldn't help them. God said, for that, no Moab, no Moabite will partake in what we have in our kingdom. So Elimelech sneaks out of the God's country and decides to feed his family another way. They go to dwell in the country of Moab, his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. There are consequences to not staying in the will of God. Can we just leave that lesson right there? She was left and her two sons, and now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other is Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Dwelling in this sentence in the Hebrew constructs to say they went there as temporary visitors. They didn't go to stay there. They were just staying there for a season, a short season, so that they could have something to eat. They could get out of the judgment of God. They could get out under the hand of the discipline of the Heavenly Father. It says, then both Malan and Killian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. This is the story of a widow. This is the story of a widow who now has lost two sons. She's standing in the place. Her name means pleasant one. Naomi, pleasantness. But life is not pleasant for her now. Lost her husband, lost her two sons. She's got two daughters-in-law. And they're Moabites. She decides it's time to go home. And so she's going to leave. And she calls her daughters-in-law to her. And verse 8 says, Go, return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. They said to her, surely we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and could also bear sons, would you wait for them to grow up so that they could become your husbands? No. It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices. They wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
This word clung is powerful. It's more than just falling down and grabbing somebody. The word clung is the same, comes from the same Hebrew-derived word where it says that Adam and Eve became one in Genesis. Where he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We will be one and the two become one. It's the same emphasis that Ruth is not going to let Naomi go. One, she's going to cling to her. She's going to become one with her. She said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back. Ruth, Orpah's gone back. You should go too. But Ruth makes this incredible declaration that's been used over and over in lots of applications. And there's even that, I think, the little necklace some of you may have had at some point. I think they call it the Mizpah. It's that little necklace that breaks into two pieces, the jagged heart. And it has these words on it. And you take it and you... And it's got two chains and it comes apart and you give one to your best friend. Anybody ever done it? I'm like, oh, good. Thank you. I'm thinking I might be all alone here. And on that it says, you know, uh, where you go, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. This is a huge statement. This is a Moabite. Saying, now I'm going to be with the Jews. We're not even allowed there, really. Your God will be my God. Here's a Gentile forsaking everything to go and to be with Naomi. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. This is a foundation for a marriage. Really. These declarations are the foundation of a marriage relationship. And yet it's between these two women. She's saying, I'm leaving everything. My home, my father, my mother, my land, my history, and I'm going to be joined together with you forever. And God do more to me if anything but death ever separates us. What a love story. This love story is placed strategically in our Bibles for me. I didn't set it up, but I'm glad it's there. Because in Judges, everybody does what's right in his own eyes. In Samuel, we begin to see God instituting the monarchy that will rule over his people, a king over his people. They cry out and they get Saul, and then all that happens. But between anarchy, and a structured kingdom led by God through a king. This little book opens up and says, let's talk about the grace of God. Let's talk about where we're really going. Let's talk about forsaking everything and following after the Almighty in a love relationship and grace. It's a story, really, of Christ and his church. It's a story of Christ and the bride. Phyllis Tribble, who's a Ph.D. at the Baldwin Professor of the Sacred Literatures at Union Theological Seminary, says it this way. The story is of Moabite who married Malan, 
of the Judaic family of Elimelech. Widowed and childless, she abandoned her family, country, and faith to accompany her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem. Her radical actions continued as she secured food for herself and Naomi and summoned the relative of Boaz to be their redeemer. Boaz married her. She bore a son who became the grandfather of David. The woman of Bethlehem exalted Ruth as the loving daughter-in-law who meant more to Naomi than seven sons, the ideal number, seven. Her name appears later in Matthew's genealogy. And this is the wonder of grace, that God takes a Moabite and brings her into the very line of Christ. She becomes the mother of King David's grandfather. That's grace. That's mercy. That's amazing. I don't know that I could tell this story well enough, but the two of them go back to Bethlehem. You can read it quicker than I can tell it. I even thought about just putting it on audio and let the audio Bible read it to us. They show up in Bethlehem and everybody says, Naomi's back, Naomi's back. Is this Naomi? Is this the pleasant one? And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. My life is bitter. Call me Mara. I I left here full. I I had a husband, I had sons, and then I had daughters who married my sons. And now I'm coming back and I am empty. I have nothing. Even the inheritance that should be mine probably belongs to somebody else. I'm here with nothing. And in the nothingness, in their poor state as they return, fortunately, it was just about this time. It was in April. And it was the harvest season for barley. And then wheat would be shortly after. And there's a law in Israel that says that if you're poor, you get to glean around the edges of the fields. You get to go and pick up what's left over and what drops to the ground. And so Ruth says to Naomi, at least I can go and glean. And I'll go find something for us to eat. Because nobody's reaching out to Naomi to help her. She's just back and she's bitter. I don't know if... (laughs) Have you ever known... I'm kind of stereotyping here, but have you ever known a bitter Jew? Huh? They're not pleasant people to be with. I mean, nothing's right. Nothing's right. You could make the best meal for them and sit down and enjoy it, and they'd find something wrong with it. So in her bitterness, nobody's getting very close. And so Ruth says, well, I'll go at least glean, and we'll get something. And as she goes out to glean, I like this verse. It says, she happened She just happened to come to the field of Boaz. Now, when we read she just happened, what I do is, in my mind, I just write over that phrase, the sovereignty of God. You know, people who are willing to get in and go and do what's in front of them, the task at hand, the hard work, God will lead them. God will lead us. There are sometimes unpleasantnesses that come to our life, and the things that are in front of us we don't want to do, But if we'll do them, God will lead us. Abraham's servant said, when he went looking for a wife for Isaac, said, I being in the way, God led me. 
It's a biblical principle. It's a simple picture of the little sailboat. You've got to get it off the dock and get it into the wind before you can steer it. It's got to be moving. So if you'll get your life moving, God will steer it. She said, I'll just go glean. But what God was doing was orchestrating an incredible miracle. And he took her right to the field of Boaz. And she's gleaning from early until late. Boaz shows up at the field and all his servants. And he says, the Lord be with you. And they respond, and the Lord bless you, Master Boaz. He says, hey, who's the new kid? Well, that's Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's a Moabite, but she's been here gleaning all. She was here early and she's been here all day late. Really? Well, get her some water. Take care of her. Keep an eye on her. She's taking care of Naomi. That's good stuff. She's a noble woman, evidently. She would serve in such a way. And things start. That Boaz, he's a sharp guy. You know, he's a gentleman farmer, if you will. He's a landowner. He's a businessman. He's bright. And evidently, he sees in this Ruth something he likes. And so he makes provision for her. He lets her come and eat in the house with the gleaner, with the servants, not the gleaners. And she, he kind of promotes her. says, come into the house, rest, drink, take a little time off, eat with, this, with my reapers here instead of with the, out in the field there. And I don't know how long a harvest takes to do by hand, but it was long enough for something to spring up inside of this man's heart toward her. And the love began. He approaches her and says, look, let's make a deal. Stay with my guys. Don't go off gleaning in any other fields because I'm going to protect you here. My guys will protect you. You've got a house there. You can get something to drink when you need it. You'll be safe. And then he goes to his servants and says, look, when she's gleaning, you know, pull a few things out of, your, out of what you're harvesting and sort of drop it. And don't make any big deal out of it. Just drop it and leave it. So she can have more to pick up. She goes home. She had lunch with the team there that day. And she ate enough to be satisfied. And then put the rest inside of her cloak and took it home. When she got there, she brought it out for Naomi to have something to eat. She said, well, where were you at today? So the Lord led me to the field of Boaz. Really? Wow. How about that? And the bitter one starts finding hope. She starts seeing the truth. Oh, he's a kinsman redeemer. He's a, he's a kin of ours. And under the law of the kinsman redeemer, he could redeem us. He could bring us back into God's blessing. Well, be sure and go back there tomorrow. She goes back the next day and comes home and Naomi says, here's what you need to do. I know you worked all day, but put on your best. Get all cleaned up. Go back. Now they're threshing. The harvest is in. They're threshing the wheat. And oftentimes the servants and the, and the master would sleep at the threshing floor for protection, keep, make sure they weren't robbed and they were closer to their work, I suppose. And it says, go back there. And while he's asleep, after they're all done honoring God and partying and eating and 
fellowshipping and rejoicing over the harvest and starting the threshing. Wait till he lays down and goes to sleep. Notice where he's at because when it gets dark, you need to know where he is. And after the sun's gone down and everything's dark and everybody's sleeping, just slip in there and lay at his feet and uncover his feet. And then do whatever he tells you. He'll tell you what to do. She slips in there. She sneaks up next to his feet. She pulls the cover off his feet. And we really don't know the historical significance of that. But one thing is for sure, it might make you wake up. If somebody uncovered my feet, I'd wake up. We don't know if there's other significance there, but nonetheless, that's what she does. Now, look, Ruth is simply doing what her mother-in-law is telling her to do. She doesn't really get all of this. It's not her culture. It's not her place. She goes in and she uncovers his feet and she waits. He wakes up and says, it's midnight. (gasps) Who are you in the dark? Who is that? It's Ruth. It's Ruth. Now, here's a phrase that comes up. I'm loving this phrase. She says in the old King James, and the new King James says it too, but not in the international and all the other ones, it doesn't say it this way. It says, she says to him, stretch the corner of your garment over me. Have you ever heard that phrase? She says, stretch, it's Ruth, stretch the corner of your garment over me. Earlier, Boaz had said to her, it's good that you stay close to us because obviously you've left your country and you've come into ours, and in this place you've decided to come under the wing of God's protection. And so I'm going to be a part of that for you. Stay with my reapers. And she's saying back to him, it's Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing now. And he goes, okay, I get it. The kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is part of the law where if a woman's husband dies, then his brother, is supposed to take her on as a wife, procreate with her, and cause the first offspring male to take on the father's name so that the household is maintained, so that the property is maintained in the deceased husband's lineage. It's stated so that when this, when this occurs, that they won't lose their place of leadership in the city or at the city gates, that they will raise up another generation to take the place of the deceased father, but that was left up to the kinsman to do it. And the kinsman could say, no, I'm not going to do it. And then it would go to somebody next to them. And I think under the law, it went from brothers, then to uncles, and then to uncle's sons. But somebody was going to have to take the widow on to maintain her place in society. So when she says, stretch the corner of your garment over me, she's saying, take me under your wing, be my kinsman redeemer. And what we have here is a picture of Christ. The picture of Christ, the one who will spread the corner of his garment over you and I, the one who takes us on in our distress and reestablishes us and gives us life. And they they stay up and they talk all night. There's a guy sitting over here on the front row that did that. And he ended up married to my daughter. In case you didn't know, that's Tim Schmidt over there who brought my daughter Janina down from Seattle for Mother's Day. Isn't he a hero? Yeah, so now you got to wake up while I'm preaching, Tim. They stay up talking all night. And he says to Ruth, listen, there's a 
There's a little glitch here. There's a little fly in the ointment. There's another kinsman redeemer who's closer than me. It's going to have to be put to him first. So get up just before dawn, before anybody can recognize anybody coming and going, and, and get out of here. You know, we don't want to have, you're a virtuous woman. The whole city knows you're a virtuous woman. And so it really should not come to light that you've been here all night at the threshing floor. It could be seen wrong. So he encourages her to stay virtuous. Take, get up and go before the dawn. And here, by the way, take all these measures of, of the threshed food with you as a gift to Naomi. She comes jogging home. Naomi says, is that you? He says, yes, me. <laughs> How'd it go? She said, well, here's everything that transpired. She said, okay. Ruth's a little nervous. What's going to happen? She says, don't you worry. He'll take care of this business before the day is over. And I can just hear that Jewish woman. This is going to be good before the day is done. He's not going to sleep again until this is taken care of. Ruth just, let's sit back down and watch what God does. Boaz heads out to the city gate where the elders would gather. And that's where they transact business verbally. They gather a few witnesses around and say, listen, here's the deal. Uh, I need to talk to this man who's coming. Okay, your witnesses. And he gathers ten of them. He only needed three or four, but he's got ten. He says, friend, come here, come here. Let me talk to you just for a second. Uh, you know, Naomi's come back. And you're the kinsman redeemer. You're the closest kinsman. And so I put it to you, sir. Will you redeem her property? I will. That's a great idea. Well, you know, in the day that you redeem her property, you have to redeem her too. Well, okay. Naomi, she's all right. Well, no, then there's Ruth, the Moabite. Whoa, wait a second. I can't do that because I get it down. If I get the whole deal, property, Naomi, Ruth, that means more babies. And when the babies grow up, I'm going to have to divide my inheritance and they're going to get it all back. Eventually, she says, I can't do that. It's going to mess up my future. I don't want to do it. He says, you're the next in line. You do it. I can only see Boaz with this huge smile. Going, okay, now we're getting down to it. He turns to the elders. He says, you've heard what he said. And the other guy takes off his sandal, which is an interesting custom. It's not practiced anymore. And by the time the book was written, it wasn't even practiced anymore. But he took off his sandal, and the sandal represented uh, right to any ownership or right to any of the deal themselves. And he gave a sandal to Boaz and said, here, you have it. You take all the rights. You take all the, the future. It's yours. And so Boaz is shaking his sandal in front of the elders and saying, look at that. See that? I got the sandal. That means I got Naomi. And that means I got Ruth. That means I got the property. And I'm going to take care of this business. Something that happened in Boaz's heart that said, sure, they'll grow up. Sure, I'll have to divide the inheritance. Yes, this is going to cost me. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? He said, yes, this is going to cost me. This is going to cost me to redeem all of these. He's paid for all these. It's going to cost him. Jesus took the cross and said, I'll pay the price. I'll be your kinsman redeemer. I'll take you for my own. I'll cut across the Gentile Jew line and I'll take you, Moabites, for my own. Boaz marries Ruth. They have a child. 
His name is Obed. Obed becomes the, the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. And King David comes all the way down to Christ. And when you go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, you'll find that the, in the listing of the genealogies, this Moabite pops out. You know, Matthew was writing to the Jews. That's why he put the genealogy in his gospel. He wanted them to see, as Jews, how that Jesus, the Messiah, could be traced all the way back to Abraham. Because that's who they trust. We're sons of Abraham. Well, so is Jesus. And the Messiah was supposed to be. And here's the lineage all the way. Well, what? Boop, 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 boop. This little neon thing in verse 5 goes, Moab, Moabite, what? Grace. God says, I can stretch across any boundary I want to, and I am sovereign, and I will lead where I need to lead, and I will guide where I need to guide, and I will bring to pass my kingdom's purposes for your benefit so that I can redeem you back to myself. And if a Moabite's got to be in the line of Christ, so be it. I love that God himself made it happen this way. We didn't figure it out. We didn't design it. He did. And here's something else. Moms, maybe we can apply this here this morning. If you just won't give up here. You know, how many of you were at the prayer breakfast on Thursday? Some of you there? We heard Jason Friend minister about how he was in a prison here in San Bernardino, the prison, the jail, and ministering. And this El Salvadoranian guy weeping behind the bars. And he says to him in Spanish, he said, my mother has prayed for me so many prayers, and look where I am. Jason said to him between the bars, he said, listen, I know Jesus can take care of your situation if you'll surrender to the love of Christ today. And he got a letter a few months later from the chaplain saying, that, that Salvarini guy has been released, and he's serving the Lord in a church. So how long do we pray, moms? We pray until. (laughs) We use that push principle. Pray until something happens. We're not giving up here. Amen? Because God answers our prayers. God has a plan. And when we do our part in obedience, we don't know what's coming after that. See, Naomi was obedient. Ruth was obedient. Boaz was obedient. They did what they were supposed to do, following the will of God. None of them knew King David was coming. None of them knew that they were necessarily in the line of the Messiah. But because of their obedience, God had even a greater honor that was coming later. And he bestowed it upon them. We read about them. They're significant in our history. They're lessons for us to learn. They're powerful representatives of the obedience to God and the beauty that comes after. I think of uh, was it Wesley that prayed? No, 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 not Wesley. This guy prayed for all of his friends to get saved. Thirty thousand people he prayed for, and they got, they all got saved. So when he died, and, and I got the wrong name, I'll get I'll get the right name sometime. 
said that when he passed away, there was one friend he had prayed for for 50 years that had not given his heart to Christ. And that man came to his funeral. And as they were lowering the casket into the grave, the man received Christ. Sometimes the answers don't come until we don't know they come. But it doesn't mean we stop praying. It doesn't mean we quit being obedient. No matter how difficult the situation might be, if we'll just surrender to the Lord, if we'll just obey Him, He'll see us through. Better to starve in the will of God than to eat the bread of the enemy. We're not so far outside the reach of God, and neither are our kids, that He can't find us. He'll reach across to another country and get a hold of them if He has to and bring them home. He'll guide us if we'll surrender and get involved in his kingdom and his purposes. Another lesson I see here is there's no small decisions in God. I'll just go glean. I'll just pick a field. Small decision leads to her becoming in the line of Christ. Is there any small decision that we could make? Not really. They're all significant And as Ruth and Naomi did, it's wise to wait on the Lord as they waited on Boaz to see the answer come to pass. They couldn't make it happen. They left it with him and said, he'll work it out by the end of the day. Our job is to wait. Sometimes we commit things to God and we want to get involved in making it work. We mess it up. I felt that when I was praying. Lord, forgive us for meddling with your will and the purposes of someone else's life. Forgive us for always trying to push it. Get over here and obey God. Chasing them down and shagging our finger after them and sending them emails and inferring things in our conversations that bring condemnation rather than saying, you know what, I'm just going to back up and I'm going to pray. And God's going to move because he can do it. He can turn the heart. He can, if he can take the king's heart and move it like a water course, you know that scripture? He takes the king's heart and, and fashions it like a water course. What that water course was in that period of time was that if you planted a field that needed to be irrigated, you actually dug a water course. We do it with little black tubes now, and we irrigate all around our property that way. They would make a water course, and they would make the water go where it needed to go in order to make the harvest grow. So you'd have these little S-curves all through your fields. And it says God does that with the heart. If we'll pray and surrender that heart, our heart first, to their hearts in prayer, will give them over to him, he will water course them. He'll steer their path. And he'll put the barricades in place. And they'll know it's not them doing it. I believe they're coming home. Moms, I think some of the deep heartbreaks you've felt over the period of time are going to be released. Soon. Would that be good? You'd like to be out from under that? Let's pray again and let's surrender it to Christ. Lord, help us to wait on you. Your word says the one that trusts in you will never be dismayed. Lord, lift our dismay this morning in any of the heartbreak that we experience. Lord, we've done all we can do. And now we're going to trust you to do the rest. You never fail. You will accomplish all that you've designed and all that you desire. We're in agreement with you that today we have experienced your grace and we want to live in it. 
we thank you for grace. We thank you that grace that stretches across the boundaries of time, space, and geography. You've shown us how you can reach into a, a failed nation and bring out of it someone who will honor your name. You were willing to crawl across and leave the land of the Jews to find a Moabite to put it right in the middle of your will. Father, would you have this grace on us this morning? Of course. Would you extend this grace to those that are whose names are on this cross and those we've not written down but are in our hearts? Lord, we ask you to do it and that your grace will be sufficient for them. Lord, we look forward to the day when we rejoice together with them in their obedience to you. Lord, for you're doing something that will move into the ensuing generations, things that we might not even see happen. But we will believe for you to do. Help us today to hear hear your voice. Help them today to hear your voice. And God, may your grace be upon us that we will not harden our hearts any further in any way. In Jesus' name. Another little point of the book of Ruth for me is that it opens with a funeral and it ends with a wedding. It's a great story. It's a great account. God's grace right in the middle of chaos and structure. Before he brings any kind of monarchy over his people, he says, this is what I really want. I want the rulership of Christ, the kinsman redeemer, to have his grace be upon your life. Be blessed today in Jesus' name, and I hope whatever your plans are for lunch, you get there ahead of the crowd. Bye-bye.